Hi everyone. Today I have Alan Knowles with me, who is my husband. He's the co-MD of Cura and he is the chair of the Protection Distributors Group. He's also the father to three children and the list is pretty much endless. Um, hi Alan. Hi Catherine, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I am very good, thank you. Very good. So Alan is joining me today to go through a bit of an income protection masterclass. This is the Practical Protection Podcast. So Alan, we've already done a little bit of pleasantries there, saying how are you, how are you to each other, but um, how has it been for you? I know we've just had a week's annual leave, but uh, do you want to let our listeners know what it's been like trying to trying to have a week off? Yeah, it's been, do, do you know what, actually, I'd say it's been interesting, but it, it's been nice. It's been nice just to switch off for a week and just not do much. And we kind of hit this this week where the very start of it, um, obviously, we're both Catherine and I being off at the same time. Um, we said to everyone in the office, don't worry, because things, it's, you know, it's December, it started December, things will start to quieten off a little bit now. Um, and then Monday hit and, you know, realized that actually there'd been an incredible number of inquiries over the weekend. It was incredibly busy and it was almost like, uh, you know, one of our, our sort of peak days for, for the year. So just as we're taking time off, but you know what we just said, we're still having a week off. We need to just have a break. We need to have just a week where we don't do anything. So the team were brilliant. They all, you know, looked after everything and kept everything up to date and, and did a cracking job for us. And, and you know, yes, we had to dot on and do the odd thing here and there, but we sat down, we watched a couple of films. I can't remember what films now, but we did watch a couple. I think we I watched, have... <laughs> I'll, I'll butt in there and just uh, help. So we watched Motherless Brooklyn, which was really good. Um, main character was Edward Norton on that. It was just like a, an old kind of film noir style film, which was, which was enjoyable. And then a film that I thought I'd enjoy, and I think you enjoyed quite a bit more than me, but I was, I was kind of disappointed by it, was Bill and Ted 3. It wasn't I, I, as good as it promised. Yeah, but I didn't set my hopes very high because whenever did. you make a film 20 years after the original, then it's never going to be really anywhere near as good. But the, the Motherless Brooklyn was good and I enjoyed the beginning and the end. I, I slept through the middle and uh, managed to still follow it. So, but that was good. We both enjoyed that. And yeah. uh, we did a jigsaw, a Pokemon jigsaw that our son sort of... Um, started half, and then... Started and we decided to finish it. Um, and uh, I, I believe I'll admit this on, uh, on, on air, but I painted some, uh, some little fantasy miniatures as well, which has been my, uh, my new lockdown hobby, doing a little bit of painting and trying to get some, uh, some time away from, from gadgets and electronic. And then obviously on Friday, we had our quiz night. Uh, What's well, it, our quiz night. Um, Catherine organised all of this and um, you know uh, I hosted around Roger and Catherine uh, Kevin both hosted around and um, but obviously it was largely you know Catherine and Lindsay who organized this and, and raised an incredible amount of money for for Parkinson's um so so you know it's just just brilliant it's a really nice way to end the week as well yeah it was it was lovely I think um, at the moment we're just getting to, like final numbers in and I think we're close to about three and a half thousand pounds um raised for Parkinson's UK and obviously um, incredibly thankful to everybody who donated and um, for the people who were able to turn up and get involved I think we had a, a really really good giggle and um and it was just nice to do something like that and i think it was it was for a serious cause but it was done in such a i think a light-hearted way that that i think you know we had some people there from the parkinson's uk and from local parkinson's groups as well and and everyone just like the feedback's been lovely and people just saying that it was just fun you know and it was it was just 
a nice break from everything that's going on this year. It was just a nice break. And as you know, Alan, and as the listeners know, um, we do usually have a Truth or Life feature on the podcast, but I'm going to skip it this week because um, the one that I did last week with um, Paul and Di from uh, Winston's Wish, it was just a bit too easy for you to be able to, to guess if I was um, being truthful or lying in it. So um, that is going to be up to my <laughs> next uh, to my guest next week, for um, which will actually be the final Truth or Lie that we're ever going to do. Which Aww. is quite sad, um, but obviously all good things must come to an end at times. But let's get let's get focused on the main <laughs> things here. So, uh, I think a good place to start is this, you know we have a lot of people who are listening who are protection advisors or who work in the protection ad, ad, um, insurance side of things. But there are other people as well who are listening from from lots of different areas. But can you just give quite a, a broad background to start off with about income protection, and then we're going to just jump straight into some case studies. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I mean, I think as you said, a lot of people obviously, you know, listening to this will already know what income protection is. But basically, income protection is is an insurance policy which protects your income or replaces a you know, proportion of your income if you are too ill to do your job, if you're too ill to work. And, you know, the, the perfect analogy, um, which, which I've heard quite a lot of advisors use in the past, is that if you had a machine that printed, you know, a thousand pounds a month or two thousand pounds a month sat in the corner of your house, would you insure it? Would you insure it in case it broke down? I think the answer is, yeah, probably almost everybody would do. And this is the same principle. The difference is, is that you're the machine. And if you can't work because you're too ill, you know, you ensure that you have that monthly income coming in until you return to work, until you're well enough, or until you retire, if you can never return to work. Um, it probably, for me, is the one main and, and major protection policy that everybody who is working should really have, um, you know, unless they've got it provided through the, the work or, you know, incredibly generous, you know, employers who, who give, you know, full sick pay, etc. then everybody should really have this policy. And I think, you know, if this year has really shown us anything, it's just how dependent upon our incomes we all really are. You know, we, 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 this year, I mean, we've, we've seen millions of people furloughed, uh, a word that, you know, pre-2020, most people had never even heard of. And now every person, you know, in the country knows what, what furlough means. But the government basically offered their own income protection scheme, you know, to help all these millions of people who couldn't work because of the government lockdown. And that was their own version of an income protection policy. And the difference is, is with our income protection, with these policies, is they cover you if you are too ill to work, so if you have a disability or an illness, and these things could strike at any time. And this year has just shown how much of an impact that can really have to any of us. Absolutely. And I, I do think that um, that's sort of that analogy that uh, you used there about the machine. I was speaking with um, Tina Weeks recently, and she'd sort of said that same analogy to me. And it is just kind of the perfect one. Obviously, we never wanted to kind of like go into... Um, sort of like scaremongering people at all but you know I think you know everything that's gone on this year is, is probably really brought the need for income protection to light for a lot of people and I you know that analogy to say so like if you had a machine that was giving you you know sort of it's kind of like as well I was given an analogy when I was uh, younger when I was at school once and they said right the teacher said right um I've got a million, I've got a vase in my hand that's a million pounds it's worth a million pounds right I want to pass it all along you and all of us you know, even though we were imagining it, obviously it wasn't worth a million pounds. Um, you know, we were handling it with such care, you know, and, and such, such care. And he'd sort of like said at the time, he was like, afterwards, he was just saying, because you're all worth far more than a million pounds. And look how careful you've been with this. And yet, you know, 
you know, when we're actually just like being ourselves, we just take everything for granted so much um, that we don't necessarily think of ourselves, obviously, in monetary terms. And I don't really like the idea of thinking of myself in monetary terms, but that is the way of life. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I just, I think that those analogies sometimes can really sort of like hit home to people like, oh, actually, that's, that's really true. It comes down again, I think, probably to that whole thing of, isn't it, as well, that like people, people insure their pets far more than they insure themselves um, for like things like private medical insurance and things like that. And it's, it's strange how we, we do that. We put so much more worth upon other things than ourselves. But let's get straight into the case studies then, because I think that's what um, a lot of people will be here to, to listen to. So I know, I believe you've got four case studies for us this time. And, um, and yeah, if you just want to start going through them and explain the sort of like what the, obviously we're known for talking about risks and different things like that. So if you can explain the risks and tell us about what the, how you went about getting the, the income protection for these people. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so the first client that I'll start with then, male client, and now he is, uh, or he was when, when we did the policy, he was 40 years old and he was a non-smoker. Now he had two different conditions. So the first one is a condition called Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. Now it's actually a fairly common condition, but you know, how many people have heard of it? Um, I'm, I'm not too sure, but basically the condition affects the electrical system um, around the heart um, and it can cause abnormal heart rhythms basically. Um, SVTs or super ventricular tachycardias um, and um, this client basically had a procedure that was known as an ablation to correct his heart rhythm because his, his, his heart rhythm was was slightly off um, after having this ablation he'd been absolutely fine his heart rhythm had remained stable for a number of years he'd still have the condition but ultimately it was causing absolutely no problems or concerns now, in isolation, this usually isn't a major concern for insurance companies as long as there's no outstanding treatments. And, you know, it's, it's, it's like this, uh, this gentleman's where it's, it's pretty well controlled at the moment. But the client also had type 1 diabetes. Now, this is a much bigger problem for, especially for income protection and the sickness-related policies, because obviously diabetes can lead to lots of different conditions and, and lots of different, um, I guess, problems in a sense, um, if the control goes or, or, you know, if they do start to have some complications. Now, with this client, he'd actually been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes for 30 years. He had good readings. Um, it was all very, very well under control. And the only complication he'd had was um, something called background retinopathy. So what happens sometimes with diabetes is the eyes can change and you can have sort of effects to the retina on the, the eyes without getting too complicated on it. And background retinopathy is, is, is the earliest of those. It's almost the, mild, uh, the, the mildest of those changes. And to be honest, that's not bad going for having had that condition for, for you know, for 30 years. I, I thought, you know, I was doing really good. And actually, you know, this client was fit. He was healthy. Um, he runs. He does triathlons. So as you can imagine, Kay, we uh, obviously had a, a good, quite geeky chat about triathlons and the like. And, uh, right type of shoes, I imagine, and things like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Transitions and all these sorts of fun things. Um, so, you know, it was a good call. We probably spent as much talking about that as we did about insurance. Um, but, you know, income protection is, it, it, it's got a, a, I guess you could say, well, a lot of people do think it is harder to get for people who have diabetes. Um, but actually, there are quite a few providers who can consider cover in some way or form. Yes, it is harder for type one. And actually, you know, the, the range of insurers does drop down quite a lot. 
But there are still options, you know, there are still people that we can discuss these policies with. Um, and I'm pleased to say that actually with this client, I was able to present him with a couple of options. And this was almost like the ideal solution for me because I was able to offer him cover with an exclusion and without an exclusion. So I could say, look, we can do this for a cheaper premium but you will not be able to claim for anything relating to your diabetes. So if, you're, you know, if your retinopathy got worse and you couldn't see the screen at work, for example, or you had a problem with your kidneys in the future, um, or even if you, know, you ended up having, you know, your blood sugars went really high and it led to a heart attack or something else, you wouldn't be able to claim for it. But then I was also able to say, however, we can also offer you a policy for a higher premium where you will be covered for anything that stops you working, regardless if it's related to your diabetes. And I presented both. And I'm pleased to say that actually he did take the cover, which the, the protection, the income protection that covered him for everything. And he paid what was called the loading. So where the price went up a little bit. Now to offset that cost a little bit, what we did is we introduced a two-year claim cap into it. So we, we sort of decided between us, we wanted to keep this into a budget for him, but he really, really wanted to still have that full cover. Um, his wife had a decent job as well. So we agreed that we could work on this with a two-year claim. And it might be something that we would review in the future to try get him onto a full-term claim. The policy that we ended up finding and offering paid him, this would basically pay him £3,000 a month if he could couldn't do his occupation for more than three months and this would pay him for two years if he couldn't work um, and for me you know I just thought that was was an absolutely brilliant outcome for that client and he got cover for the diabetes which he wanted as well as anything else that would have stopped him from working. That's brilliant. I don't think as well, if I remember rightly, that for this person, that there wasn't an exclusion for the Wolf Parkinson White either, was there? It was all, it, literally, it covered him for anything. There was, there was no exclusions in regards to the pre-existing health. Absolutely right. Absolutely. So it was guaranteed premiums, fixed premiums, and there was no exclusions for either condition on the policy. And this was all helped by the fact that, you know, he was fit, he was healthy, he was running, he was le leading an active lifestyle. And we were able to use all this when we spoke to the insurance company as well. Yeah, I think what's, what really stands out about that one as well for me, like when we were talking about it, is the fact of how much you can adapt the policy to suit that person so obviously you know you had the option you know there was two options there you could present to the client an exclusion or not an exclusion you know you were able then to say right okay you really want it you know to be able to cover everything well let's also we need to make sure it's still affordable and, and affordable for the long term for you so it was a case of okay then so let's do it for a two-year claim period I think you know everybody's listening you know as, as you were as well and as a client you know, ideally you have the claim period running up until retirement but you know it's, it becomes sometimes that kind of offset of like well do we have something that's affordable that's going to exclude anything at all to do with the pre-existing health which is pretty much a especially in this situation a very very hefty set of exclusions or do we adapt it slightly to go well actually maybe the full term you know full cover to retirement isn't available right now but we've got two years per successful claimable event um which as say covers the, the situations which are you know potentially gonna you know there's quite a few situations there that could potentially lead to a claim at some time. 
Absolutely. And you know, I mean, what other policy can you not only change the benefit, you can change the term, you can change the claim period, you can change the deferment period, you can look at exclusions or loadings. You know, you don't have that flexibility with any other type of protection insurance like life insurance or critical illness. So it really does allow you just to tailor this to a budget and to make the policy as suitable as you can to everyone that you speak to. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a really, um, really, really good one. So I think you've got um, another health condition, another client with a health condition that you're going to chat through. I absolutely do. Um, so the Sorry, very uh, eager then. I absolutely, I absolutely do. I absolutely <laughs> do. I absolutely do. Um, so yeah, the the, the the second client. So so the, do you know what? This is just for me a really really interesting case for 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 more than one reason, which probably everyone else listening to it thinks oh, this could be really boring. Actually, and not interesting. I think I'm really sad for saying this is interesting. But this well, is Alan, you've just admitted to painting miniatures, so I think everybody pretty much is wondering how exciting this is. <laughs> Surely everything I say from now should be. Interesting in comparison. Um, so this was a this was a lady who was fifty seven. Um, she was a non smoker, and she had a condition called Hughes syndrome. Um, now this is more commonly now known as antiphospholytic syndrome or APS, um, and it's basically it's an immune system disorder which can increase the risk of blood clots and DBTs. So blood clots occurring in the the blood leading to, to DBTs or deep vein um, thrombosis. Now it it, it it's sometimes has so been referred to as a, a sticky blood syndrome because because basically the blood is, is thicker and becomes sticky. Um, really, you know, your blood should be at an ideal sort of level between thick and thin. And obviously on this, it goes too much to one, one way. Um, client takes a blood thinning medication called warfarin, which in itself, warfarin isn't something that insurers particularly like. Um, you know, I, I can't say I'm an expert on this, but my understanding is there are probably side effects for taking this long term. But ultimately, you know, for her, she's got to take it because otherwise she has a risk of, blood clots and strokes and DVTs, etc. Now, where this one got interesting for me is, and I'd never seen this before, but she had, she also had a condition called lupus, which I have seen before, by the way, but um, lupus is a, an autoimmune condition, which usually makes people uninsurable for income protection. But what, what was new for me for this one is that her GP actually believes that this condition burned itself out about uh, about 20 to 30 years ago because she's never had any symptoms in all that time and she takes no medication for it whatsoever so they basically whilst they had originally diagnosed her with uh, with lupus they said that they believed almost her liver had just basically recovered and completely burned the, the condition out and essentially very rare but she had recovered from what was believed to be a chronic condition. Um, now uh, this was supported by the fact that actually if she had had lupus we would not have got a, an income protection policy because that is a declinable condition for, for income protection pretty much across the board. But we were able to actually finally offer her something. Now, so I guess with, with this lady, we had two challenges here. The first challenge was getting cover with these conditions which we were able to, to actually find and we were able to source somebody who was happy to take this on, albeit we were looking at an exclusion around the, the, you know, the antiphospholytic syndrome. Now, what ended up happening is we submitted the application, but after a couple of months of underwriting, which is where we, you know, insurance companies go backwards and forwards with the doctors getting all the information back, the insurance company actually turned the application down. So they declined her and said, I'm sorry, but even, you know, all this taken into account, we can't offer you the cover. 
Now, obviously, we were a bit baffled by this. We didn't quite understand, but we thought, well, there must be more to this. There must be something we weren't aware of. You know, sometimes can be the case as when you see doctor's reports. So the client signed us consent to be able to have a conversation with the insurance company, and we spoke to the insurers about this. What it actually turned out, and this, this was our second challenge with this one, is that the medical reports for this lady stated that she also took medication for epilepsy and that she also took statins, which is a medication for high cholesterol, neither of these were correct um you know she said i i've never had epilepsy never had it in my life i don't take medication for it and i've never had high cholesterol and i don't take medication for it and what it basically transpired is that 20 years ago a doctor added these onto her notes for whatever reason we're not sure um, obviously it was 20 years ago and they were never removed um but you know she went back to her doctors we challenged this we got this corrected because obviously the nurse and doctors all knew she didn't take these these medications or have these um got the records corrected got this back to the insurance company and then they revoked the decision and they offered the cover for her which was just you know an incredible turnout uh, you know of, of, of events for me and it just really showed to me the value and and how important it is to to discuss a decision like that with the insurance company because we could have just left that and said i'm really sorry but actually do you know what um they've declined the policy um it was too much on there and, and you know we can't do this um but we took it that step further and we said we want to know what that reason is and we spoke to the insurers and we figured it out and we actually figured out that there was something wrong um and with the client's help got it corrected and got that client cover and that's not an isolated incident um, and yes, it's concerning that doctors and reports can have incorrect information on, but it does happen. I was going to say, I mean, that's something that we've, you know, we, we experience quite uh, regularly, actually, which is, I think, surprising. What I think is quite surprising is that obviously as ourselves, because we are specialist advisors and we understand quite you know, quite clearly a lot of the time what certain medical conditions or severity of medical conditions will lead to certain terms. So when something comes back and it's maybe terms that we're not expecting or there's maybe decline, it's, it, you know, for us, it's, it's, it's not easy, but, you know, it's, it's quite clear very early on for us that something isn't adding up. Now, whether or not that's the client's misunderstood something or whether or not there's something um, being uh, incorrectly recorded on the GP report, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a mix as to whether or not which of those things are the case. But we've obviously, I mean, we've spoken before, we've seen it where GP reports have said that somebody's diabetic and they're not diabetic or um, the, the GP report actually says that someone's cancer has a higher staging and grading than what it actually was. And that's been the reason that someone's been declined by so many insurers before they come and speak to us. And I think your message there is really important to say, sorry, like as an advisor, it's, it's really important to... Um, be able to to identify when things have gone wrong and if you don't have time to to obviously go through those terms and to sort of like figure out why things have suddenly changed so much or why there's a decline then obviously there's maybe a duty then to to speak to a, a more of a specialist advisor who can step in and, and try and figure these things out but possibly as well for people you know if, if you do have the time and the resources to maybe say well actually let's try and see this report, you know, let's see what's going on. Let's make sure that the right information has gone to the insurer because that's not what we were expecting at all. 
And I think, you know, it's it's very hard because of data protection. Um, I think we all know that it, it's hard because obviously everything goes from the insur- um, from the GP to the insurer. Um, it's like who can have access to that data? Well, at the moment, it's just purely like the GP and the insurer and trying to make sure that we still, I mean, we maybe sort of figure out some kind of system between us all that obviously is fully compliant to data protection where, you know, if there is something that's very, very different to what has been originally stated, um, and you know, and it's very clear to the to either to the insurer or the advisor that something's just not adding up in regards to the information the advisor knows or the insurer knows, that um, we can build something where um, we can all work together and hopefully chat together a bit more. Um, and uh, I don't know, maybe that'll be something that we can figure out at some point. I'm sure there's lots of compliance and data protection people listening at this going, she's mad. There's no way that we can do that. There's absolutely no way. But the, the, you know, the, it's not the, just compliance people thinking. That. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, the, there needs to be a way that we can try and and sort of like do this because it's happening more and more. And we're seeing it a lot more with our clients. And and the thing I think that probably worries me quite a lot is that um, if we're seeing it so much with our clients, how much is that happening elsewhere? And it's not being identified. Um, and and people are either just walking away from getting insurance and actually they could possibly have it. It just so happens um, that the GP report is wrong. Yeah. And I, I think there's another an, a, a sort of another, I guess, concern over this as well. And I, I mean, it's delves away a little bit from income protection and maybe into life insurance, but it affects both is what happens if a case goes straight through? So what happens when an insurance company doesn't write to a doctor's to a doctor? You know, if we accept 70 or 80% of our cases without any medical evidence, obviously that's not curious figures because most of ours gets doctor's evidence because of the, the, you know, the nature of the customers that we help. But a lot of people do see straight through business. And what happens if incorrect information is on those reports and then a, you know, your insurance company's never seen them, but then a claim comes in five or 10 years down the line, especially if somebody's passed away. And, you know, how is that then challenged at that point? Um, and it raises a whole question over medical evidence as well. We try and move away from it because it's it's hard to get, but actually in some ways, maybe we should be getting it because it, you know, solidifies, you know, the, the, the validity of the information. But um, that, that's probably a bigger conversation and debate for, uh, for a different time. It is. I have to say, I adore medical information. I adore GP reports because I'm just like, right, okay, we've got everything here. Let's go ahead with the information from the GP. And then if something, as I say, isn't as we expect, it's like, right, okay, something's gone wrong somewhere in regards to the reports. What's happened? <laughs> and I think the important thing about that as well is that, you know, if it's something like um, that the GP's written something wrong, it's a case of, right, well, we need to get this corrected so that this person can have this. And if not, if it is something that maybe the client's not understood their health um, as much as the GP maybe sorry how they've how they've uh, relayed it to the person that it's really important that that person actually does end up understanding their actual health and the situation that they are facing because if not then that's not really fair on them either um Mm. but okay let's go on to sort of like a slightly different track then i think we're going to be going for hobbies or as i was i was reading an email and it was avocation yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I like that word, avocation. But it's one of those words that I look at it, but I have to see it in a sentence because I'm just like, <laughs> what on earth does that mean? 
<laughs> so absolutely. I wanted to move away from health conditions for this one. So and give an example of someone who's got a more hazardous pastime or avocation. Um, so this gentleman is uh, 34 years old and a non-smoker. Now he was in a, an office space, well, I say an office space role, he's actually a lecturer. Um, and um, his main, um, basically main risk was that he did a lot of mountaineering and, and basically rock climbing. Now his rock climbing was usually in the UK USA and Europe, he would normally do somewhere between two and three times uh, per week, albeit largely this was indoor, um, on the indoor walls, which usually isn't a big concern, but he would do around about 50 outdoor climbs every single year. Now, in addition to his regular roped climbs that he would do, um, he also did some scrambling. Scrambling is basically usually a lower height or bouldering, this sort of thing, but you would do it without ropes. Um, so you've obviously then got to declare that somebody's maybe climbing without ropes at some point, but explain, you know, the whole bouldering, scrambling side of things. For his main rope climb, um, he would never do more than 4,000 meters. 4,000 meters is kind of like that magical number with insurers where, you know, especially if you're looking at life insurance, do they climb more than 4,000 meters? And, you know, you look at something like the Alps, for example, and, you know, you can say if someone's climbing in the UK, then they're not going to be going above 4,000 meters. I was say, do you think it's something like the number four zero? Because that's a lot to do with, like, people who are working, working at heights as well, isn't it? Did they go over 40 feet? Uh, like, yeah. <laughs> 40 feet, 4,000 meters. We'd like a four, we'd like a zero. Let's just stick with that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like you like in even numbers and fives, I think, you know, absolutely. It's the absolutely. same thing. Well, that's just sensible. <laughs> Um, so, you know, it, it's 4,000 meters. Now, for, for life insurance, for example, if you go above 4,000 meters, you're more likely to, to start incurring price increases than you are if it's below 4,000. For income protection, the effect's maybe not quite as, uh, as sort of drastic as that because usually what we tend to find with income protection is most insurance companies will automatically say you do outdoor rock climbing, you're doing it reasonably regularly, therefore we will exclude it. That's... Uh, I have to say it's the easy route. It's the common route. That's what most insurance companies will do. And, and you know what? It makes sense. If somebody's doing something that's a little bit out the normal and it is a higher risk of them having an injury and therefore being unable to work, exclude it. Let's take it out of the, the equation and, you know, everybody knows where, where they stand and we can, you know, still offer the insurance to people. The problem is, it's not every... but I feel like they're probably for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess the, the thing with this is that not everybody wants that. You know, some people, and, and a lot of people, actually, if you're told that you can't have something, people want it even more. And it's like, well, I should be able to have that, actually, you know, and, and use the argument of, you know, somebody rock climbing is extremely fit, incredibly help, you know, healthy. You know, they've got to be strong to be able to lift their own body weight and do what they're doing. They're getting outside, they're getting physical exercise. You know, there's a lot of argument there to say that people doing you know, these activities are actually doing something really good. You know, they're not necessarily, you know, sitting at a pub drinking, for example, they're out doing something obviously very, very active. Um, so there's lots and lots of benefits to that as well. Now, I, I guess the, the good news here is that there is one mainstream insurer who generally will cover people who do hazardous sports without exclusions. And they will do this as long as you've not had too many injuries in the last few years as a result of it. Now he ticked all these boxes for this. This was great. 
but he was actually caught out because income protection has got some other little caveats and every insurer is slightly different. How long you've got to be in the UK, how many years income you've got to have proof, um, you know, how long you've got to be with a UK doctor. And this gentleman had actually only moved to, to the UK, basically he was born in the UK, moved elsewhere, then he came back to the UK, then he went over to Ireland for a while and then he'd only been back in the UK for 18 months. This insurer required him to have been in the UK for three years, so he couldn't have that policy. So we're then left with saying, well, actually, every other insurance company will, will default to go on exclusion, but you really, really want to be covered for, for your activities because, as he said, he could have an accident. You know, he could have a fall or something could happen and it could stop him from working. And he wants to make sure that that's not the case. He wants to make sure that he feels comfortable if he is, do, you know, if he is doing his activities. He said he's, he's not a risk take. You know, he's not going to go and do anything silly. He, he climbs within his limits. He's not going to go do ice climbing. He's not going to go do large unbolted routes or anything like that. You know, he knows what he's doing and he, you know, he, he knows his, his limits. Now, I'm pleased to say that we were able to actually use a lot of this information and we used, actually, you know, the, the guy was brilliant. You tell he was a lecturer because he wrote a page long essay for us, might have actually stretched onto a page and a half explaining what he does and what could be construed as high risk and why it wasn't high risk. And we could use this to our advantage. Now, we also had the fact that this client um, had six months full sick pay provided by his employer. So we needed a deferment period. So that's how long you've got to wait before your income protection pays out. Now, he was willing to wait because of his sick pay and really had to um, for six months before the policy would pay out. So let's be honest, if he did have an injury, you know, he put his shoulder out or something like that and he needed surgery or he broke a leg or whatever, is it really going to keep him off for more than six months? I, you know, I guess, yes, you've got the argument of a big fall and a traumatic head injury certainly might do, but actually a lot of the injuries and sprains and breaks will be less than six months off work. So we use that to our advantage and the fact he was in an office job and not a manual job. And we managed to get another insurance company who typically their standard process is to say an exclusion. And they said, you know what, you're right. And we're willing to look at this and we will offer him standard rates. And they did. And they offered it without an exclusion. Um, and this gentleman got 2000 we're asking an income protection policy. It pays £2,200 a month if he can't work for more than six months. Covers up until retirement age. So it's a full claim on this one. And it costs him £31 a month. You know, for protecting all that income of his, it's nothing, really. You know, protecting that machine in the corner that's printed all that money for £31 a month is just incredible. Absolutely. I was going to say, I'm actually going to pose that question. That I sort of like, um, <laughs> it's not going to have my head, so I'm going to have to say it. Um, I think one of the things that I think, and I imagine that some advisors may think this as well, maybe not all of them, and it would be really interesting to see if there's any underwriters that can sort of like give a bit of an answer to this, is that I think for me as well, when it comes to things like the rock climbing and stuff, you know, I, appreciate, I, I do understand sometimes why there's going to be exclusions and things like that. But I suppose that there's a time, though, where, you know, in a sense, the exclusion kind of, the more dangerous it becomes for the rock climbing, the more unnecessary the exclusion is because, you know, you're kind of bordering into sort of that thing of like, right, okay, there's no longer going to be an income protection claim here because it's going to go into a life claim if it's going to be that dangerous. And um, I'm quite interested to sort of like maybe 
I don't know, maybe sort of like see some kind of like understanding behind it as to as to why it would maybe it it, it becomes that when, as I say, when it when it does get to a certain level, that it's it, it's not going to be a case of them being unable really to work. It's um, it's it's more sort of that they're just not going to um going to be able to survive it. But um, I don't know, it'd be interesting to, hear, to, to see some people's thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I think that argument stretches into other areas as well. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think someone who's, you know, rock climbing, for example, there is that thing of you could put joints out, you know, you can pull muscles. It's a strenuous activity on your body. So it's not just the falls, there's all the injuries that could happen as a result of it. Um, but obviously with a lot of things, like when somebody's working at heights, for example, you know, you've got somebody working on top of, you know, pylons and, you know, ele electricity towers and, you know, offshore, et cetera. You know, might be 100 meters in the air, for example. Let's be honest, if somebody falls from that kind of a height, the chances are they're not going to be claiming on an income protection policy. They're going to be claiming on a life insurance policy. So, you know, the, the, the risk, as you absolutely say, is, is different. But then there are instances where people do fall from those heights and they do survive and they do have serious injuries yeah. as a result and i'm sure there's probably more more to it but it, it is a really interesting debate and yeah likewise i'd uh, you know i've had that conversation many times about offshore workers and the like so would be be interested on the theory with rock climbers and uh, and everyone as well absolutely just for clarity i'm not saying that we don't have exclusions at times i just i'm just interested i'm just genuinely intrigued it'd be really really interesting to sit down with somebody and and to chat through that i've got a couple of underwriters in my head that i'm thinking I may actually ask them about it. And if they're listening, I'm thinking, I bet they're thinking, oh, I really hope it's not me that should come to <laughs> <laughs> But if they're thinking that, then it probably is them that you're going to. It probably is, you right. It's when they start getting call or ID for me. <laughs> it's just, no one answers. Um, <laughs> so I think we're going to go on to our last case study now. And I believe we're going back to um, a health condition, and one that's obviously something that I find extremely interesting. Absolutely. So this, um, I wanted to go back to health, but I wanted to switch away from physical health and move into mental health. Um, so this is about a, a client, a female client. She was 35 years old when she approached us and a non-smoker. Um, now, um, I will just say that when she was younger, when she was a teenager, she had suffered with ongoing depression for, for many years. And very sadly, she, she'd actually tried to take her own life on three separate occasions um, all during her teens over a number of years now it had been been really really difficult for this lady because she'd been she'd, she'd basically been treated for depression and nobody ever looked further than that at the time you know she'd never been investigated for anything you know different it was always just treated as low mood and depression now eventually when after after the third um uh, basically a, a attempt to take her own life when she was around the age of 20 she got diagnosed with a condition called bipolar disorder and this is when things changed for her and it changed massively and i mean we, we we probably had a good hour on the phone talking about this and she you know she talked a, a lot in depth about you know how things had affected her and what had actually you know happened over the years and how things had changed now bipolar disorder for, for anyone who doesn't know is basically a mental health condition that can cause you know periods of both depression so you know almost extreme lows but also extreme elevated mood so extreme you know it's described as lows and highs with it it's, it's one extreme to the other um and after you know after she'd been diagnosed it was almost like if she described it that was like the weight had been lifted she, she knew what it was she you know and she was able to be treated 
properly and she was being treated properly for it then you know she was getting proper medication for bipolar rather than the standard antidepressants and counseling that would have been given to someone who had low mood or depression she'd been stable then for many many years now one of the things that i've quite often found having spoken to quite a lot of clients with with conditions like bipolar is that a lot of people are very and i would say actually the same with mental health conditions as well especially people who have lived it with it for a long time is that they become very very aware of their own mental health they know their triggers they they learn what to recognize and almost preemptively know if something is is going to be a problem now this actually happened to this lady um, around about seven years ago um, and she just noticed that these these thoughts were almost starting to creep back in again and things that she didn't like and she recognized she thought this isn't right um, and I need to get some help before this gets worse so she checked herself into hospital at that point and this as she described it to me was her preempting a problem and she went into hospital, she got treatment, she got care, she didn't need time off work as a result of it, um, she didn't need massive changes to medication, and she was out and carry on her life as normal. So for her, this was, it was her really just, almost just taking control before something became a problem, before it came too worse, uh, became too bad. Now, most income protection insurance companies will will just decline people for bipolar as soon as you say a client has got bipolar disorder it's an immediate no but there are a few who will consider and usually what they like to see is a period of stability so no hospital stays for example you know no major flare-ups no time off work but what i would say is when you've got a circumstance like this and someone who may be preemptively talks to somebody or rings the doctors or the psychiatrist or asks for an increase in the medication where it is preemptive like this and they are really almost trying to, to stop something before it comes a problem you can speak to the insurance companies about this and explain this and this is what we did for, for, for this lady now I am really pleased to say that we were able to offer cover for, for this lady um, it did come with a mental health exclusion but I don't think that anyone would expect it not to do um you know because at the end of the day she does have a lifelong condition um and she was fully an accept you know fully of acceptance of this um and we were able to offer her a policy that would pay her 1600 pounds a month to 1600 pounds per month if she couldn't work for more than 13 weeks due to ill health again she was working to a budget so we introduced a five-year claim cap on this we did restrict that claim down a little bit to five years um, and the premium was around about 20 pounds per month for her so again you know it, it was good protection yes it did exclude something but something that she was fully accepting of and understanding of um, but she was still covered for everything else you know she hurts her back if she falls down a flight of stairs if she gets lupus which we discovered you know we talked about earlier one of these other conditions or she has cancer or a heart attack and she can't work there's so many other things that she could claim on um and she was still able to get that policy even though a lot of insurance companies would say no without even looking at the circumstance I think this is one where I imagine a lot of people can understand. I have, I have a lot of opinions of, um, and I, th I think you know. I mean, I, I think that's just absolutely an incredible, incredible case study um, that you know you've got there and you've talked through. Uh, some of the things that sort of stand out for me is with this is that I, obviously I do help a lot of people with mental health conditions. And I have to say, you know, when I speak to people, and sometimes you know it'll be a case of. Uh, maybe on a life insurance that it could be like a permanent self-harm or suicide exclusion or you know like an income protection where there's been 
possibly going to be a mental health exclusion. The majority of people, and, and I really do mean the majority, there have been times where there's been a couple of people who aren't too sure of it, um, but the majority of people have been absolutely fine with those exclusions because they'll say, I'm in a completely different place to where I was um, when I was being diagnosed, you know, I'm, I'm, that's not going to happen again, that's not a concern for me. Or they'll say, I've got this um, health condition, but it's never actually stopped me being off work, so I, I don't need to be covered for it because it's never stopped me before and I'm in a much better place with it than I've ever been before. So, so I'm fine with that. I think one of the things that always confuses me, um, and again, you know, more than, you know, obviously it'd be really nice to sort of chat to people as well, you know, sort of like to hear the background side of things is I, I get confused when, you know, sort of companies offer income protection to say that they'll offer um, income protection to people with, uh, with people with mental health conditions, with a mental health exclusion, but then they just outright decline people with bipolar disorder or some of the other um, mental health conditions that are considered to be of, of a stronger um, nature. And, and that really confuses me because I think, well, if you're excluding mental health, then what's the difference between excluding it for someone who has anxiety and someone who has bipolar disorder? And, and the only thing that kind of I can think of is that maybe it's something to do with the medication or maybe there's a concern as to the to the understanding and the cognition of the person um, who is arranging the policy, um, as to whether or not they fully understand what they're what they're arranging, maybe if that's a complaint risk. Now, I think a big argument for that is if that is the concern, then it, you know offer the policy, but only offer it through advisors, because then if there's a complaint risk, it's going to be on the advisor. Um, but also, you know, there's plenty of people that I know who have you know, bipolar disorder and other conditions, and, and it doesn't stop them working. And they have the same risks as anyone else if they aren't able to work. And I, I do find, you know, these, like you said, the blanket exclusions um, that we get sometimes in, in all the, you know, all the different types of policies can sometimes feel a little bit stern, a little bit extreme at times. But I, I know that um, I know one of the things that I think we we're going to maybe chat about as well at some point is sort of like this, um, the, the sort of the infamous three strikes rule when it comes to income protection, where sort of like if you have three things on the application with quite a few insurers, once there's three things on there, that's it, you're out. There's no more income protection for you. And it may even be the smallest of things in some ways that can that can do it. It's not everyone, obviously, but I think you wanted to, to maybe have a little chat about that. Yeah, absolutely. So so I guess, first of all, I just said, I mean, I think income protection underwriting has come such a long way. I mean, before I go on to the three strikes thing, you know, so I remember, you know, writing these policies 10, 15 years ago and, you know, the list of exclusions was massive. The declines was, was huge. You know, it, it, it was, it was definitely a lot harder in the past to get cases through. And I think, you know, how good these policies and how flexible they are now is just, just absolutely brilliant. And actually even on the mental health underwriting side, we are making a lot of progress. It's not easy. And, you know, I think we as under, advisors need to understand um, that it's not easy. It's, it's it's probably not as easy as a, as a physical condition to underwrite because you're relying on how somebody feels and how much somebody talks about something. There's this whole argument, isn't there? I mean, it, you know, if we compare us, you know, I, you know, I use this example quite a lot, but I don't typically talk about mental health. I bottle things up and I don't talk about what's going on. And you'll know this very well. Eventually what happens is something triggers it and it, it pops and all of a sudden it all explodes out in one go. And that's not particularly healthy. Um, but actually, you know, I could probably go in and buy income protection without a problem because never talked to my doctors about that. And that's kind of just 
me and what I do. Um, whereas, you know, somebody who talks about their their mental health, and even if I look at you, Catherine, with this, and so someone who's more actively talking about it and aware of it, um, and far more than I am, um, you would get an exclusion straight away. But actually, you're, a, in my opinion, a much lower risk than the me who bottles everything up and never talks about it um i think you know i've spoken to clients before and i think it, it is fair to say that you know with some people they do feel as if they get punished for being actively on top of their mental health and on top of being aware of their triggers and maybe speaking to somebody and like you say you know it's kind of like well what's what's safer is it safer for the person who is actually speaking about it and taking preventative action and and one of the main things that we say when it comes to income protection is and other things is you know it's like if you're going to get to a point where there's maybe going to be a claim um even before that stage speak to the insurer get in touch with the support services you know do the preventative action to try and prevent there being a claim and and people are self-doing that they're self-managing that in their own lives and then it's kind of kicking them in the bum when they're trying to get insurance. <laughs> and I, th I, you know, I, th I think we're, it, it is hard and, um, you know, credit to insurance companies who are really trying to, to, to get this right. But I think what's happened over this last eight or nine months with COVID and the lockdown is going to really force the hands to, of, of everyone to, to, to make these changes quicker because over the next 12 months, it's going to be hard to find someone who hasn't experienced some sort of mental health difficulty um you know over the last year if we're all going to be completely honest um, okay big thing so just another thing to pick up on that very quickly i think that's hard because it's like you know i can imagine quite a few people there will be going well i haven't had any mental health difficulties you know yeah you know lockdown's been tough and there's been the odd days i've been a bit stressed or anxious and then it's a case of well okay then so actually that means that you do actually have to tick yes on the forms to say that you've been stressed and anxious and so it's depending it's which of, ones you answer yeah, yeah. there will be somewhere get picked up absolutely exactly uh, so it kind of goes back to what we've been saying for the last few years or so in regards to these questions and i'm not just sort of like saying that <laughs> i feel like we're becoming like a, you're you're really pro and i'm really anti what's going on and i, I don't want it to seem like that. i'm just obviously i'm just trying to pose different arguments and stuff and different suggestions but it does come back to that thing like you know that question of you know have you ever had stress or anxiety at the end of coronavirus if anyone can say no to that that in itself to me is kind of like an indication of a mental health condition in itself because you know we've how can you not have felt at some point stressed or anxious you know not being able to go out to to the shops you know forgetting you've got a mask you know you've not got a mask in your pocket and then having to go home and being stressed because i've had to go back blooming home to get that mask to be able to go into is, the shop you know is that a reference to me with the opticians the other day when i got halfway down there and realized i'd forgotten how to run back and ended up a big mess when i was finally back down there yes, that is absolutely in reference to you, um, Thank you. most of the things i talk about in reference to you um, <laughs> subtle dicks um but you know there's it would be very, very, I think before coronavirus, it was very, it would be very strange to find someone who could answer, honestly answer no to having ever had stress or anxiety. There's taking your car exams, you know, the driving test, there's taking, you know, your GCSEs, there's going on your first date with somebody. Um, you know, there's so many things where, and it's, it's kind of like the definition of what is anxiety, what is stress, what is disclosable, not disclosable. And, and I know, again, we've gone on to a completely different line of discussion here. Um, but you start well, you get for getting your health. husband. Yeah, you, you got your husband on a podcast. What, what else know. do you expect? You meant mental health. You know, this was going to be, this is going to be that I, I was going to say I could be here for hours just going on this subject. So I will stop. Um, but no, I think, you know, as you say, that you know, there's going to have to be some kind of reaction um, to, to all of this because it, 
the questions as they are posed at the moment, I, I, would, I would find it very hard to think that if someone said no to that, that they weren't possibly in, in danger of potentially non-disclosing. And I, I guess if I pull it away from, uh, from, from the mental health side, so we don't talk about this too long. You also asked me about uh, the three exclusion rules. So three, three strikes and you're out, um, as, as we call it. So there is, um, and not everybody does this, but the, there is this, um, I guess, sort of um, approach to underwriting income protection with some insurance companies where you have a, a limit of three risk factors that can be invoked on an income protection policy before it's classed as not fair to the client and therefore declined i mean as i said not everybody does this but we've you know we've been caught out by this before and have seen this in action Um, and if i pull one of the the daftest ones you know i guess for this so we had a client who had a a, a, you know small price increase because a little bit heavier you know slightly higher bmi so 25 percent increase 50 percent increase on their, their body mass index they had an exclusion because they were doing some sailing so um, basically doing yachting, et cetera, so they wouldn't cover them for sailing. And then they'd had a problem with their finger. Now, I can't remember exactly what it was or which finger it was, but they put an exclusion on the finger. Um, and that finger exclusion pushed it into a decline um, because it was the third risk factor. Now, you might say, well, that's, that's ridiculous. That's just technicality. And, and yes, do you know what it was? And it was a hard and fast rule with that specific insurer that no matter what, that was an out and that was a no and we can't offer it. Um, we pulled it, went to a different insurance company, it was accepted, it was absolutely fine. But there are instances like this where you might get three exclusions or you might get a load in and then a couple of exclusions. And, you know, yes, it's always going to be worth if they are big exclusions like musculoskeletal, um, mental health, for example, which, you know, account for the majority of income protection claims. But sometimes it can be smaller exclusion, exclusion on the knee and exclusion on the elbow and then, you know, a mental health exclusion, for example. Well, my argument is, is there are still lots of things that that customer could claim on. And if we decline that insurance policy for the customer, we're not just excluding them for claims by those conditions. We are basically excluding them for claims by any condition. So if that client got cancer, heart attack, they had a stroke, if that client fell down a flight of stairs or was in a car accident, they can't claim because they were never able to buy that insurance policy. So it's one of those rules that I'm sure there's a bit of background there and I'm sure there's a reason for it and it's come from somewhere. But I think in the world we live in today, um, where we do get bumps and lumps and niggles and things checked out and we do go see the physio and we do go see the doctors to get things ironed out putting such limits on these exclusions um it it definitely does restrict access and it's one of the things that it does still still great a little bit and i think it's i would just love to see that removed and i'd almost just love to see everyone on an income protection get individual consideration you know i guess it stretches as far to say that everyone should be looked at and considered as a person and rather than just looking at those specific conditions if that makes sense i think that makes perfect sense and i think it's really powerful what you're saying there in the sense of you know you're not just excluding them from claiming on those conditions you're excluding them from any condition and i think so i've taken that a bit further as well it's kind of like that thing of who's to decide what is right for that client. So, you know, if you're saying, you know, if someone's saying to the client, right, well, actually, we're going to exclude you for your left knee, your right shoulder, um, and for your back. So, actually, we're just not going to offer it to you. 
well, who's to say that that's not what the client's quite happy to have? You know, the, you know, in, in a sense, you know, who, why, why can't that person, in a sense, be considered to be adult enough to make that decision as to say, like, well, actually, there is going to be quite a few exclusions on here, but I'm still covered for, like you say, cancer, heart attack, strokes, possibly develop Parkinson's, and, and all these conditions that we are seeing being diagnosed more and more. I think the latest statistic is something like one in two people, um, every one in two people will be diagnosed with cancer, mm -hmm. and that's sort of the latest statistics. I mean, a lot of people are worried about that. And, you know, if they've had, you know, like if they're super fit, but yes, they've, you know, they've been playing sports. So they've had, you know, a tennis elbow and they've done the knee in and different things like that. It seems really, really unfair that they then wouldn't be able to, to get the, the cover. You know, and if, as long as it's very, very clear again to them. And if, and let's say, if there is that worry of a complaint risk, then, you know, use advisors, you know, to, to offset some of the complaints, um, you know, sorry, potential complaint risk that's there. But I think, um, sorry, coming towards the end now, and I don't think we could finish this without talking about the seven families, if you'd like to, to, to have a little bit of a chat about that. Yeah, I mean, so so just very, very briefly, and whenever I talk about income protection, you know, for, for me, being able to reference the Seven Families campaign is just just absolutely incredible. Um, I won't go into too much detail because I think probably most people have heard of it. But if anyone hasn't heard of the Seven Families campaign, it's something that that happened years ago where you know, basically insurance companies all grouped together um, to, to, to provide income for seven families who had been struck financially due to illness as such as strokes for for example um, and to show just how giving a year's worth of income to these families could make a huge difference but actually one of the i guess you know biggest things that actually came from it, and you know you can go to the website which is uh, seven families with a number seven not the the word uk um, and you can watch some of these videos but one of the biggest things that actually came out was the value of the support services so yes the money was great but actually getting some of these support services and other benefits that people don't necessarily think of or see what we call value-added benefits you know support services from nurses and counseling and help in in recuperating and recovering how actually they were just as important if not more important than the benefit themselves so i would just say for, for anyone who hasn't i mean they were done some years ago now but they are timeless and they are really good case studies. We've embedded them on our website for, for customers to, to view and see. Um, we use them for staff training and um, I, I think the, the last couple, bless, have, uh, have, have been in tears after watching at least one or two of them. It's you know, the incredibly powerful stories to, to just really highlight the importance of what we do in protecting people's income and just how important having that income can be when it everything else has been turned on its head um you know can be so i would just encourage anyone who hasn't watched them have a look at the website and do check them out i think an important thing with um with the seven families as well they've just done like a seven families revisited so they've, they've now gone back and, and done new videos with the people so i see how their lives have progressed but i think there's like a, a twofold thing with the seven families in the fact of you know you start like you're looking at this and you're just like wow this is what income protection can do look how amazing it is and then there's that other side of it where it suddenly hits you and you go, wow, they missed out on this. And yes, this, these seven families have been extremely not fortunate because of their situation, but they've had the opportunity to have this income protection in a sense given to them for, for a short period of time, but they've missed out. And how many other people are missing out and don't have this? And you can see in the videos just how much 
the help it gives to the person who's suffered you know, a very, very serious illness or accident that's led to them being unable to work and also to the people that are caring for them and how it's probably helped them to recuperate and get into a then, no, it sounds terrible to say the new normal because that's what everyone says now, um, but you know, it's like their new normal way of living far quicker than if they, if they didn't have the policy. So I think there's, there's, a, there's multiple layers um, to watching it and you're right Alan so like it is something that I signed to our team to, to watch and I have had quite a few of them say to me please don't send me any more of these I can't cope I'm just I'm just so emotionally drained now in a, in a good way in the sense of you know they're saying it's just it is so powerful and and hopefully people who are listening who, who now know about them will be able to see that as well but um we are at the end now so um thank you to everybody for listening and thank you for joining me alan i'm going to be back next week with the final episode of season two at the end of 2020 and um, i'm going to be speaking to matt ran and we're going to be talking about his career as an underwriter which has uh, been spanning 40 years and seeing about obviously say his career but also how underwriting has evolved over this time so i'm going to be absolutely fascinated to, to hear about that if you'd like a reminder of the next episode, please do drop me a message on social media or visit the website www.practical-protection.co.uk. And don't forget that you can always get a CPD certificate as well by um, going on and claiming and doing the little form that's on the website too. So, so thank you very, very much for joining me, Alan. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Bye. Bye. <laughs>